Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast, where you're going to find news that you won't find anywhere else, and where you're going to hear from a guy who wants to unite the country, who wants to show as much love as humanly possible, and who wants to motivate and make you a little bit wiser with each and every episode. My name is Stan Orr Mitchell, and I'm a prior Marine and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas, and as a guy who worries a lot about our current media situation, as well as the state of our country, I decided it was time to have a place where you can come listen and just get the facts, no matter what side you are on. I absolutely love America, and I care a lot about our military, where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon. We need a calm and solid media voice, who doesn't work to divide, and who doesn't use scare tactics or extreme, minuscule examples to work up their audience. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I know that our democracy doesn't work without informed voters. And I also know we need to grow closer together and show more patience and kindness to everyone. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the March 2nd edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. Uh, in this episode, we'll be discussing several topics, which hopefully they will interest you, and I think they're things you probably haven't seen in the news, and this includes plenty of news on the Ukraine-Russian war, uh, quite a few things about the tensions between China, Taiwan, and the U.S., We've got one brief tech news item, which kind of piggybacks on last week's tech news. And finally, we will cover plenty of motivation and wisdom, which I know for many of you is the best part of the show. So with that, let's just get moving on this. So we begin with the Ukraine-Russian war, and the question is, could Ukraine get fighter jets from somewhere other than the United States. And yes, we've been talking for months about the U.S. potentially sending F-16s to uh, Ukraine. They have sent a contingent of lobbyists to the U.S. There have been several U.S. congressmen who have been pushing for F-16s to go there. So far, President Biden has said no. The Pentagon has sent fairly mixed signals but the bottom line is, <clears throat> all in all, the answer has been no. But since the last episode, Slovakia, which is a small part of what was formerly Czechoslovakia. Just a bit about Slovakia real quick. So it broke away in 1993, and the country broke up into two countries, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So Slovakia is not huge in population. It's got about 5 million people, so about half the population of the state of Tennessee. And Slovakia has MiG fighters that it's no longer using. And the MiG fighters, uh, they had about a dozen. <clears throat> and they were um, basically not being used. The experts from Russia, from Russian technicians, those left the country. And so the Ukraine Air Force flies MiGs, and so Slovakia is now saying, hey, let's give, I guess it had 12, it's going to give 10 of the 11, I guess some of them have been cannibalized, but it has 11, it's going to keep one for a museum, and it's thinking about donating 10 of them 
to Ukraine, where those parts and the technicians could be used since Ukraine is flying it. And so that news broke a day or so ago, and right now we're basically just waiting to see if, essentially, I don't want to say the West, but basically the West and NATO will approve the transition of these planes to Ukraine, or will that seem too provocative? You may remember in the latter part of last year, Poland had talked about moving some planes but Russia said that would seem like too much of an escalation. There was discussion of how do you get the planes there? What country do they fly from? How does that work? Because obviously if Russia were to attack NATO, that would lead all of NATO to defend itself. But at the same time, how do you fly planes in from a NATO country that are going to reinforce Ukraine? When can Russia shoot them down? So there's all kinds of logistical issues so I will keep everyone posted on that, but definitely Slovakia is saying they're willing to donate the planes. Now you might say, well, isn't Slovakia worried about being attacked? Uh, Slovakia has a lot of NATO troops there. They're slowly but surely moving toward NATO planes, but NATO actually reinforced Slovakia when the Ukraine hostilities uh, kicked off. <clears throat> they moved what they call a battle group there. And so there are a lot of Patriot missiles. Uh, Slovakia has already sent S-300 missiles to Ukraine to help shoot down uh, Russian jets. So Slovakia has a history of being a communist bloc country. They are no fans of the Russian regime. And so they definitely want to continue to assist Ukraine. And they definitely want to get these jets there. It's just a matter of if the West will essentially sign off on this move. And I apologize for my voice. I think I'd said last week I was sick and I'm mostly better, but as you can tell by my voice, uh, the voice is not there yet. So I'll keep you posted on that as more things happen and let's just move to the next bit of Ukraine news. So the second topic I wanted to cover regarding Russia comes from the Center for Strategic and International Studies which is a bipartisan nonprofit policy research research organization, and I quote from them a fair amount. They're used by a lot of news organizations and journalists, and they put out some great stuff. And the Center for Strategic and International Studies released this week, since the last episode came out actually, that Russia has suffered more combat deaths in Ukraine in its first year of war than it has in all of its wars since World War II combined. And that's a little shocking to consider. And it's also shocking to consider that the average rate of Russian soldiers killed per month is at least 25 times higher than it was in Chechnya and 35 times higher than Afghanistan. And that is just, I mean, that is just mind-boggling. But they include in their report, I've got a link to it in the Substack notes if you want to go check it out. But they <clears throat> have a list of all the previous wars. And the big ones obviously being um, Chechnya back in the 90s, Afghanistan was in the 90s, uh, Georgia, when the invasion of Georgia was in 2008, there's Ukraine, there's Syria... But going back, you may have heard words like Angola, Mozambique, uh, Czechoslovakia, Algeria. Uh, they've been in Yemen. 
They invaded Hungary, even had some uh, casualties back in Korea. So they've got a number of places since World War II that Russian troops have intervened. And in all of those wars, they have still lost more in one year of war against Ukraine than in all of those. Now, in Afghanistan, back in from 1979 to 1989, it's estimated they lost between about 14 to 16,000 soldiers. Chechnya, which lasted from, and there was two different wars. First one was from 1994 to 1996. Uh, and then the second one, there was a bit of a reprieve. But the ne- next one lasted 10 years from 1999 to 2009. So that's almost, what, 12 years? They lost 12,000 to 25,000 in that war. So, you know, you're talking about 40,000 troops between 10 years in Afghanistan, about 12 or 13 years in Chechnya. Those were the two big wars. Well, they've already literally gone past 70-plus thousand. Now, the Center for uh, Strategic and International Studies did break down the original invasion of Ukraine when the Russians took over the Crimean Peninsula and Donbass, the eastern part of the country. They lost about six to 7,000 in that fighting, and then they've already eclipsed 70,000-plus since the more recent invasion, which is now about a year old. So Vladimir Putin wanted to accomplish some things, and um, he is accomplishing some things. I don't think it's what he wants to accomplish, but... That is horrific, and I've said numerous times that the atrocities and war crimes Vladimir Putin is committing in Ukraine are are horrific by any stretch of the imagination. But just as bad, almost, almost, as the attacks on all the civilians in Ukraine is that he's literally sending barely trained Russian troops with very little training, and I'm talking days sometimes, some of these uh, men, I think they're almost mostly all men, have they may get to fire three to five rounds out of an AK, and then they're sent to the front line. Most of them just a day or two of training. Some of these men of his are getting almost no training. And so he's not only killing Ukrainians in just this horrific war, but he is showing absolutely no conscience at all toward Russian men as well, his own own citizens. And so at some point this is going to catch up with him, but I did want to report that, uh, yeah, he's now managed to kill off more Russian soldiers in war than previous wars of almost 25 plus years of previous wars in Russian history since World War II. So quite um, quite the asterisk to have in your record someday. I want to cover just one final thing while we're still talking about the war in Ukraine. And that is um, a couple of amazing analysts recently released a study about the war after, uh, you know, observing it closely for a year. And they they labeled four major um, findings that they've noticed while studying the war. And the four are are pretty good ones. Um, I'll go over them briefly. Um, They are, in war, cities are important, even the ones with no military value. Two, the foundational task of urban warfare is not clearing, meaning clearing buildings. Um, Three, 
In cities, armies must be able to defend and attack and switch between the two rapidly. And then four, an army that cannot execute combined arms maneuver will suffer, which is obviously like tanks and artillery and infantry working together. So those are four principles that were released in this report, and I've got the link to it. But I wanted to cover one part because that really interested me quite a bit, actually, which is that first one, which is about cities. And one of the things the authors talk about is that in war, cities are important, even the ones with no military value. And I wanted to quote just a small part of it. They talk about, obviously, there have been major cities such as Kherson, um, Kiev, and other cities where both sides have fought to attack or defend. But they talk about that there are cities such as Bakhmut, which fighting continues to rage there, and it has for months. And if you look on a map, there's very little military value to this city. But the thing that they point out is that, um, let me find the one line I wanted to read. So it says, why are the militaries of each nation fighting so hard for seemingly insignificant terrain? And in Bakhmut, it's not on a river, it's not one side, it's not got a mountain. There's no reason to be fighting so hard for this city. And the authors point out, it is because they are, they being the cities, it is because they are symbolically important. And their control, consequently, has political value. Ukraine does not want a city of 70,000, which is what Bogmut had prior to the uh, invasion, I should say, to fall into Russian hands. Likewise, Russia wants to seize these cities to demonstrate progress in a war that has not gone well, seizing thousands of rural square miles in a region simply does not have the same political effect because war is inherently political. These seemingly insignificant pieces of terrain become tactically and operationally important, and yet another reason why fighting in urban areas cannot be avoided. So there you go. Uh, I thought that was a good summary of why there is so much fighting happening in especially the Bakhmut area. Uh, and that article is written by John Spencer and Liam Collins. Uh, John Spencer, we've quoted a lot. He's a retired army veteran, uh, retired major, uh, started out enlisted. I've gone over his bio before, but uh, obviously he's written a book as well. Uh, very respected analyst. And I think he just really summarizes that I think the reason Ukraine cannot let go of Bakhmut, because Russia is trying so dadgone hard to take that place, is they just do not want the headlines across Western papers to say Russia finally seized Bakhmut. Because even though there's no military value, it will be pretty big in the headlines. And because everything is so contingent on Western support of Ukraine, Ukraine just cannot allow anything, you know, to appear to a public that isn't as well uh, informed. You know, the public might not realize that Bakhmut, militarily, strategically, not that important, is much different than like Kherson. But to the public, it just is going to look like, oh, Ukraine took part of Kherson, but Russia took Bakhmut, those two are equal. Well, they're not equal at all, not even close. One's a capital, one isn't. One's on a river, one isn't. But the public doesn't know that. And so I think Ukraine just cannot allow 
Russia to take Bakhmut, and that's why they are fighting so hard to hold it. Uh, they're taking pretty high casualties to hold that ground, but they just can't allow, you know, the media, and I almost want to go on a rant, but I always am so critical, especially of Western media, because it will barely cover foreign policy until something like this breaks, and then when it does, it'll do the flashing graphics and they'll interview someone and they'll say the war's been raging for a year and Americans are getting tired of it, despite the fact that no Americans are fighting there. And it's just so repetitive and, and frustrating for anyone who actually covers this stuff and takes it serious. So I think that's the Ukrainian officials are smart enough to see what could possibly happen. So they're just trying to prevent this from happening. So it's a great article. If you want to read it, I've got the link. It's a free article. You can go read it. It's short. Also, highly recommend his book as well. We're going to move now to some China news. But before we do, let me remind you of how you can support the show should you choose to do so. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free to do so, unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. Make sure to visit my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, so you'll never miss a show. And again, that's free. Also, people are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books sooner. Believe me, the best way to support me is by signing up for a paid subscription on my Substack page, or you can sign up at Patreon, where you can find me by searching my name, Stan R. Mitchell, or at Venmo, where you can find my name by searching at Author Stan R. Mitchell. All of these links can be found on my Substack page, and it's $5 per month should you choose to support the show with a subscription. Obviously, you can cancel at any time. Thanks so much. So let's move to China news. We talked about last week that the administration, the Biden administration, was warning China that intelligence indicated it was on the verge of providing lethal weapons to Russia in its war against Ukraine. And the administration put out a lot of very loud signals to China that it was going down a path that might be a path of no return, that it should not isolate itself, and that it should think long and hard about its decision. Since that news, uh, as of Sunday at least, the administration, there must have been some movement or something, or I'm not sure exactly what happened. I don't know if China reached out behind the scenes. I don't know if the China made some kind of warning and the administration realized maybe the language was too strong and they needed to back off of it. But they did come out Sunday and say that there is no evidence that China has sent lethal military support to Russia yet. And so the fact they said that so strong tells me there's probably some stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. I don't know. Those are one of those things... It's in that gray area that you just never really know exactly what's going on. But it was kind of interesting they came out with such a strong, you know, message that it wasn't happening yet. Because some of the analysts in the social media world were saying they think China may have already sent some stuff. 
So not sure where the truth is. Some had said, eh, maybe they've sent some stuff through North Korea and North Korea sent shells to China or I'm sorry, to Russia. I'm not sure, but at least the, for now, the administration is giving China time to say, we're not doing that and we don't want to be a part of that. So as of now, the official word is China is not supplying Russia. So I definitely wanted to get that in. I've got a link to a Washington Post article there, but you can find many others because that was a pretty big splash in the foreign policy world. While we are on this subject, let's just say we can forget Hunter Biden or January 6th. There you go. That was my joke for this episode. And proof that I can play the catchy headline game that's all about clickbait. No, I'm actually not going to talk about Hunter Biden or January 6th. But on that same note, Congress is now investigating China. There is a bipartisan uh, congressional committee that has begun its hearings. It's held its first, actually, on China and the threat that China poses. And I actually wanted to read just a few sentences from an Associated Press article. Or actually, I'm sorry, this was a, a CNN article on this one. Uh let me just read just a few sentences from it, um, and I will begin now. Bipartisan lawmakers warned of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party on Tuesday during the first hearing of the House Select Committee on China, a rare demonstration of unity across the aisle in a Congress increasingly divided along partisan lines. The panel's chairman, Republican Re- Republic. Republican Representative Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin described the stakes in sweeping and dire terms at the outset of the hearing, saying, This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century, and the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. And so this is me talking now. That is quite the setup, is it not? So again, he called it the existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. The uh, top Democrat for the panel said that the Congress must practice bipartisanship. And um, uh, she said, we must recognize that the CCP, which is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party, wants us to be fractious, partisan, and prejudiced and goes on to basically, the committee says they want to distinguish between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people, as the Chinese people are the party's primary victims. So, be interesting to see how this goes. They started with a big splash as well, um, public hearings at night. Um, The Washington Post put out an editorial that praised the committee's work so far, and I only mention that because they have reporters that are much more in the know, so to speak, with, you know, actually shoe leather in the halls of Congress finding out what's going on, and apparently this committee's working together pretty well. And they actually, in an editorial, the Washington Post wrote, It is all too rare these days to see House members working across the aisle with a shared and serious sense of purpose, so we should applaud even tentative signs that it's still possible. So it'll be interesting to see how much um, noise to the American public this committee can make and what they actually investigate. There has been some talk that they're going to be looking into stuff like TikTok, which is 
a little less serious in my opinion, but they also seem to be looking into much more serious parts of the threats toward Taiwan and also a lot of focus on human rights. So this will be this will be interesting for China because they're about to they're about to go through some you know, interesting times, I think. And I, and I say that because obviously with the previous administration, um, uh, pre- former president Trump had, um, launched some tariffs against China. Uh, this is obviously a bipartisan committee. Uh, president Biden has stood pretty strong against China. And so I'm only saying all this to say that China is probably one of those few things that Republicans and Democrats can agree on. And so I think China really needs to tread softly as it, you know, deter- as it figures out its future steps with America, because this is definitely something that I think both political parties could agree on. On the same topic as well, if the committee first public hearing wasn't enough to get China's attention. Um, I gotta say, as far as strong warnings go, the one put out by the Deputy uh, Secretary of Defense this week is about as strong as one can put out. I want to read what she said. Uh, Her name is Dr. Kathleen Hicks. She shared on social media and also on the official page for the uh, Department of Defense that just this morning... I'll read it. It's a short one. An amphibious landing is the hardest military operation to undertake. Russia couldn't succeed over a land border. China should be taking note of how challenging that kind of amphibious assault would be. They don't have nearly as much practice as Russia in fighting modern wars. So Dr. Hicks is obviously referring to Russia couldn't succeed over a land border. She's talking about Russia couldn't take Ukraine over a land border, over a shared land border between Russia and Ukraine. Now, obviously, most people thought Russia could take Ukraine in about two or three days. I thought the same thing as every other nearly... Basically, any analyst who spoke out at that time thought it could happen. It didn't happen. And so, uh, Dr. Hicks shared this really serious warning to China. And so, again, very loud signaling going on there. Definitely wanted to share that as well. But let's balance it with one other bit of uh, moderation, I guess. And that is, this is one of those things, it's hard to even really mesh this with the two items I just shared. But this comes from the Wall Street Journal. And the they talk about how McDonald's, Ralph Lauren, other U.S. companies, including Starbucks, are planning all kinds of expansions in China by 2025. In fact, 3,000 new Starbucks planned by 2025. So we have the political world worried about some kind of an attack on Taiwan, some type of invasion with this huge threat from Chinese society of two big power struggles, what'll happen. And at the same time, we have the business world still planning on expanding there. So I don't know who knows more or who knows what. Um, I'm not sure really how to mesh those two because I have documented quite a few stories in the past six to nine months of store of U.S. 
manufacturers leaving or putting some things on hold or growing concerned about um, economic activity in China. But not all of them, for sure. And so maybe, and I, I this is definitely my great hope, maybe China can moderate some of its behavior and its human rights issues and some of its expansionist plans. And maybe there's a middle non-combative ground that China will walk. And maybe the U.S. business interests have enough contacts in China have enough business folks who live there who believe this is the case. And so they're going to go ahead and keep going full speed ahead because China is a huge market. I mean, it's a massive market, a billion people. And so, and maybe that's just them hedging their bets. Maybe this is just a small amount of growth in the market, a safe growth. Um, not sure. And maybe they're just throwing out a line like, hey, this is the good option. We can keep growing there. We can keep making things happen. Let's think about what you're doing here. I'm not sure. Some of that's way above my pay grade. But uh, I did want to note that because it is interesting. We'll just uh, keep hoping that um, the president of China makes the right decisions and that um, we can have a peaceful coexistence because I know that's certainly what we all want. All right, so we're going to cover some tech news before we get to the motivation and wisdom section. You may recall in last week's podcast, we talked about the robotic dog with a machine gun, very accurate, or an assault rifle on top of the robot dog with, you know, it's got the red point aim dot or aim point sight. Um, nothing I would want to face for sure. And so we posted the video last week of this dog running around and very accurately firing and... This week kind of piggybacks on that. The um, defense website Task and Purpose, or magazine, I think they consider themselves a magazine, uh, had, a, had an article titled, Robot Dogs Are Taking Over the U.S. Military. And it shows how this dog, it basically is about the size of a backpack, and how the legs start to extend, and then it's a dog about the size, you know, of, waist high and it it documented several different military units that are already using dogs now these versions aren't armed but they are um loaded with sensors with thermal video um audio they can hear <clears throat> and it talked about how these are increasingly being used to defend military bases airfields um space forces using them and you know, when you read the article and you watch these things, you realize that these are very capable weapons. And the article talks about how it's safer than sending humans and airmen down range, so to speak, in dangerous situations. But when you watch these things operate, you realize that they're actually a very small target. They're very thin. They're obviously made of, you know, very strong metal or steel they're not something that a typical rifle would very easily disable easily um and so it seems more and more that robotic dogs are definitely here um now it did say in the article one of the advantages of robotic dogs versus 
wheeled drones or drones that have tank treads is that the robotic dog legs are very maneuverable upstairs, downstairs, over logs, through rough terrain, sand, etc. So apparently, as far as robotics go, having a robotic dog is pretty much the way to go. So now it's just a matter of increasingly putting weapon systems on these dogs. And of course, the main advantage of any robot is that robots don't get sleepy. You know, they would have battery power, but as far as a, comparing it to a human, you know, humans, we need rest, we need food, we get sleepy, we aren't always 100% accurate. Humans make mistakes, which obviously robots could too, but as far as like when you watch some of these robots operate as far as firing weapons, they don't miss. They're not they're not humans. They don't you know, they have some disadvantages, but they have a lot of advantages. So increasingly, as we use our technology, um, the good news is, is that it should reduce U.S. casualties. I uh, would not certainly want to go up against some of these newer weapons, but um, definitely seems like I'll tell you guys every week that I'm all about tech news and how warfare is changing. And I've been the guy that was sleepy very little sleep, wet and cold in a foreign country with a weapon scared out of my mind. And I, I still think one of the advantages of of robots that gets maybe not documented as enough is that, you know, I've been under fire and you can talk to any veteran who's been under fire. It's scary. You have adrenaline. And I don't, I think we underestimate that when you're using a robot, there's no fear involved. And so a metal computer controlled robot whether it's a drone in the air or one on the ground they don't have human emotions of fear they're not going to be shaky they're not going to be scared it's going to move and whether it's shooting a 12 inch steel plate or shooting into a human at 100 yards away it's going to conduct the task as systematically and unemotionally as as anything and so that that is an advantage and you know, I've, I've said in, I think it was a few months ago, that if you were in a firefight and someone's shooting at you, you're going to react. You're going to duck. You're going to be scared. I don't think a robot's going to do any of those things. It's going to simply fire back. And so if you got a human versus a robot on a one-to-one situation, you got to kind of put the odds on the robot. And especially since a lot of these appear to be, these dogs especially, it's a smaller target, and it's it's made of metal. So, yeah, it's crazy how war is changing, is it not? But I definitely wanted to highlight that. If you want to read the article, definitely worth your time. Because, as I said, there are several different units. They got photos of them, and they're literally already in use in our military in some units, at least in the sensor row. Now, the one I showed last week with the weapon on it, that was not a military one, but it shows how easily it can be done. And we do have robots that already do have weapon systems. And those have been in place since, if you go back to like EOD units, we had robots that disabled um, 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 explosives and, sorry, I couldn't think of the word, IEDs in even Iraq. But um, increasingly, we've used cameras and machine guns in defensive positions for years now. But we are now beginning to be able to put them on offensive, forward-moving robots. So, 
there you go. That's the latest tech news there. And with that out of the way, we will get to the best part of the show, the motivation and wisdom section. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is that we are all prone to influences. And honestly, we're more prone to them than we even want to admit. For example, just a couple of months ago, you know, dead middle of winter, a lady went running by the house down the street in the cold. You know, it was probably 30 or so, 35, but still pretty cold. I don't like cold weather. Let me just put that out there. But immediately I was like, man, you know, she's out there running. Why, why am I not? And so later that day, I went for a run. Same thing happens when we watch TV, which we shouldn't watch too much of, but you guys know that already. You see a commercial that has steaming hot pizza on it. Next thing you know, you want some pizza. So just as we know that all of us are easily influenced, it's my hope that these weekly messages help influence you just a little bit in a positive way. With that, we'll just get started. I say this every week, but you can find these various sources that I'm quoting from in my source notes on my Substack page, and they're great folks to follow. So we'll begin with just the first one. No matter what happens in life, keep a good heart, a heart of trust and patience. Don't let the darkness of some people harden your heart. Again, that one was, no matter what happens in life, keep a good heart. A heart of trust and patience. Don't let the darkness of some people harden your heart. It's a great one. Next one. Your comfort zone is the enemy. Oh, that's another good one, isn't it? Your comfort zone is the enemy. Next one. Be strong now because things will get better. It might be stormy now, but it can't rain forever. Again, that one was, be strong now, because things will get better. It might be stormy now, but it can't rain forever. Next one, direct yourself toward the small things you are good at. Again, direct yourself toward the small things you are good at. Isn't it like human nature to try to get better at things we're not good at and sometimes maybe we should just look at what what are we naturally talented at maybe that's what we're supposed to be doing all right here's the next one you got to train your mind to be stronger than your emotions or else you'll lose yourself every time again you got to train your mind to be stronger than your emotions or else you'll lose yourself every time next one no more expectations Just go with the flow, and whatever happens, happens. Oh, that's another good one, isn't it? No more expectations. Just go with the flow, and whatever happens, happens. That one definitely hits home for me. I always have... I set high goals, but a lot of times I expect quick results, which I think a lot of us in the modern society, we struggle with that, don't we? We want to uh, have instant results fast things to happen, and um, that isn't how life works. So again, the quote was, no more expectations. Just go with the flow, and whatever happens, happens. No matter how difficult it gets, keep going. That's a nice and short one. No matter how difficult it gets, keep going. I like that one. Next one. Be grateful for what you have, 
Work hard for what you don't have. Oh, that's a nice little balanced one, isn't it? Be grateful for what you have. Work hard for what you don't have. Next one. What worries you masters you. It's a great one, too. What worries you masters you. Next one. Success isn't something given. It's something earned. So go out there, work hard, and make your dreams come true. It's a great one. Success isn't something given. It's something earned. So go out there, work hard, make your dreams come true. This next one is a really good one. Anyone can say they care, but watch their actions, not their words. Wow, that one's deep, isn't it? Anyone can say they care, but watch their actions, not their words. Next one. You don't need more time. You need more discipline. Another great one. You don't need more time. You need more discipline. You are a fighter. Look at everything you've overcome. Don't give up now. It's another good one, isn't it? You are a fighter. Look at everything you've overcome. Don't give up now. I mentioned from time to time creating a confidence list where you just list out accomplishments you've done in life, whether it was, you know, whatever they may be, how big or how small in the year that you did it. And just sometimes seeing that list is... A good thing to read over because we only remember the bad stuff and we forget the things that we have done. And I have some silly ones on mine, including I was a co-captain of the cross-country team at my high school. Even though I was one of the not-as-fast runners, I rarely even made it in the top five on my team to even count for the points. But I never mispracticed. I encouraged people, blah, blah, blah. I had done, done it for several years. And so probably partly out of sympathy, but... For whatever reason, they picked me as co-captain, and and that always, I always think about that. That you know, I wasn't even good at it, but I tried as hard as I could, and I loved it, and I encouraged people, and so, you know, to be picked as a co-captain of something that you're not very good at, that's kind of a, that's something, right? So whatever your list is, make a list of things you've done that you're proud of. Let's move to the next one. Weak people revenge, strong people forgive, and intelligent people ignore. I'll read that one again. Weak people revenge, strong people forgive, and intelligent people ignore. That one's kind of deep. I like it though. Just get on your path and do what you need to do. We all get so distracted by all the drama in life, do we not? All right, here is the next one. In life, it's important to know when to stop arguing with people, smile, and walk away. It's another great one. In life, it's important to know when to stop arguing with people, just smile and walk away. All right, we've got just a few more here. Next one. You are either a blessing or a burden, an asset or a liability, a problem solver or a problem your choice. It's great, is it not? Something we should all think about with the jobs that we do at work. We all know managers carry a heavy load. And so you probably ought to ask yourself this, that you are either a blessing or a burden, an asset or a liability, a problem solver or a problem. Your choice. 
Very good. Let's go to the next one. Your strongest muscle and worst enemy is your mind. Train it well. That one is hard to disagree with, is it not? Our minds, man, they haunt us, don't they? They they break us down. They cause us anxiety. They also power us, though, do they not? Do they not? Sometimes, have we not all had a goal that you set yourself to that seemed impossible that you did eventually reach? So again, your strongest muscle and your worst enemy is your mind. Train it well. And let's do this one right here. Never forget. It might take a year. It might take a day. But what's meant to be will always find its way. It's a good one, is it not? It might take a year. It might take a day. But what's meant to be will always find its way. If you're stubborn like me, sometimes I I will hit my head against a wall too many times. And sometimes it's just not meant for that wall to, fi- to fall. So if you're at that point in your life, may- maybe it's just not meant to be. you got to be smart about what goals we're chasing, do we not? Now this next one is one that you got to think about a second. The quote is, I am not after the money. I am after the freedom that comes with having money. Two very different goals. So again, the quote was, I am not after the money. I am after the freedom that comes with having money. Two very different goals. And it reminds me of a story I once read about, uh, and I can't remember exactly where I read this now, but about a a guy down in Mexico talking to a fisherman who's like, you know, you should fish more and then you could own more boats and then you wouldn't have to work and blah, blah, blah. And the guy's at the end of the story is like, if I did all of that for to have freedom, all I would do is want to fish. So why not just fish and enjoy life as I go through it? And so I think sometimes in life, I think we, we're after money so that we can go to Hawaii or go do this or that. And maybe we don't have the money to do that, but maybe you could still take your family somewhere special that weekend. Or maybe we, I think sometimes we just chase things that maybe we don't have to chase. Maybe what we're looking for is a lot closer than we think. All right, next one. There is virtually no anxiety that can't be cured by an hour or two of good reading. As an author, I really appreciate that one, but it's just certainly true for me. Again, the quote is, there is virtually no anxiety that can't be cured by an hour or two of good reading. I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10-plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. 
I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013. But once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a -a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone, call a friend or a family member, do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get, can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because honestly, the airspace is free. And also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, They are probably books that would interest you, so I will briefly describe them. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. I got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action. A couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two Book one is called Takedown. Book two is called Gravel Road. And it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what the prior Force Recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Akov, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. There's plenty of action in it as well, and it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. 
And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary situation where the last elements of part of the German army is just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So really, the book is... It's pretty deep, so it it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish, and will they survive with their honor and dignity, and, you know, I've been told this, that Soldier On just truly defines what it means to be a soldier, to never give up. And then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan, it's called Hill 406, it's about a couple of Marines who couldn't be more different. They get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation. It's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. And then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention. Actually, it's a part biography, part self-help all-inspiration type book about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents. What sets them apart? What qualities allowed them to reach their goals where others failed? How can you cultivate those qualities in yourself? And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking, how he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge, like, two-to-one election defeat. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. It's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help. So I think you can learn a lot from presidents. I could go for on for, again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top. The How He Managed to the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody, but it's an incredible book in my humble opinion. So that's called number 44. You can check that out as well. And I don't think I said this earlier, but you can find all of my books on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and just search for the name Stan R. Mitchell, and you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed and that's the best place to get them. And that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell. So way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.